0: everyone, and welcome to a special live episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and what you're about to hear uh, was recorded live on October 14th, 2022, in Birmingham, Alabama. McKeel and I were down there for the dedication of the Hugo Black Memorial and Park, that is, the great Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black, and Professor Moore was given the honor of delivering the dedication address on the 15th. The day before that ceremony, a symposium on Justice Black was held at Samford University's Cumberland School of Law with a number of panels, including former U.S. Senator Doug Jones, uh, various federal and state judges and attorneys general and more. Uh, America's Constitution was invited to record a live podcast as part of this symposium. The next voice that you'll hear will be that of Stephen Suits. Vice President of the Hugo Black Memorial Library Fund. He's the uh, author of a leading biography of Justice Black, and he was the logistical wizard behind this uh, magnificent celebration of a great American. Steve introduces us, and we take it from there. We had great fun recording it with a super audience, and we hope you enjoy this special live podcast.
1: These two gentlemen uh, are um, Yale men. Um, Akhil Reed Omar is the Sterling Professor of Political Science and Law at uh, Yale University. And Andy Lipka is the embodiment of civility and law at Yale. Uh, Should be on the trustees, as best I can tell. (laughs) His profession is not law, it is uh, medicine. Uh, but he has become uh, the Boswell of, uh, of Dr. Johnson <laughs> and um, they do a podcast which we're about to tape that can be av- it's available free it's uh, at any of the uh, podcast services and it is a serious conversation about constitution and constitutional interpretation. And uh, without further ado, I will give it to. Andy Lipka, the co-host of America's Constitution.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Steve. I, re- I really want to give a big shout-out to Steve, who's done an incredible job in uh, arranging this thing. So, um, I also want to give a big thank you to uh, Sanford University, the Cumberland School of Law, for hosting us today, and for all those great panelists that uh, preceded us. It's really a great honor to be here. Um, and as we start this uh, special live episode of America's Constitution. Um, I want to let you know that it, it is live, but it's live to tape. And as I said, I'm, I'm Andy Lepka with Professor uh, akil Amar, and this is our 95th episode um, since uh, the beginning of 2021, so we haven't missed a week yet. Um, but uh, that's only our second live one, um, and, you know, we've had uh, great guests, and I want to let you know, audience, that you're our guests today. Um, so that we're going to have, uh, you know, a Q&A. Um, at the end, we want you to be, you know, a big part of the episode. So we'll talk for a while. But as guests, you're going to join the likes of some other guests that we've had, which include uh, Bob Woodward, Gary Hart, uh, Linda Greenhouse, Neil Katyal, uh, Ed Whalen. And in the weeks to come, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer is going to be on and uh, Nina Totenberg from NPR. And of course, now you. So, welcome. So, of course, we're going to talk about Hugo Black and his uh, extraordinary relevance to this moment. Um, We're going to talk about the fact that he's probably more relevant to the moment today uh, than any other justice who's no longer with us. Um, So, this is his moment. Why?
2: Because it's such a great honor to be back here with my friends in Birmingham. We just lived through a jurisprudential earthquake with at least three landmark cases that portend um, a a major realignment. These things happen from time to time, and Hugo Black was involved in earlier prior realignments, as you will hear. But I want us to begin, we'll, we'll get to Black very, very soon, but I want us to begin by thinking about the three biggest cases of last term, the Dobbs, case about Roe versus Wade and Casey, which were overruled, the Bruin case, New York rifle case about guns in America, and the Carson case about equality, religious equality in the schools. So Dobbs, Bruin, Carson, huge cases. We've talked about them, Andy, you and I, on previous editions of the podcast, but I'm going to try to make the case today that if you really want to understand those cases, you got to understand Hugo Black first, both substantively and methodologically. More than any other justice, he set the table for the biggest cases of last term. And, and so we're going to talk about those cases and Hugo Black, and then actually the biggest cases of the upcoming term and how they too, I believe, will be very, very powerfully shaped by the ideas both substantively and methodologically of the great Hugo Black. So
0: actually we we did some thinking about this, and we actually thought of cases, actually came to mind very quickly, cases of Justice Black's, which actually correspond closely to some of the themes in these three cases. So in the um, Bruin case, which we're going to start with, um, Justice Black's dissents in Bets and Adamson, and his opinion in Gideon versus Wainwright um, all sound a theme which we can find in Bruin, which we're going to talk about. As far as Dobbs, um, actually it's a dissent, a dissent in which perhaps you know, we, wouldn't, we would say today maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so proud of this dissent, but his dissent in Griswold versus Connecticut um, actually raises some issues that are dear to Justice Black that are relevant to a discussion of Dobbs. And as far as Carson, um, the majority, its that one's an easy one, the majority opinion in Engel, um, as well as uh, the Everson case, um, are cases that, that come to mind. Um,
2: so let's start... And we'll explain all of that, um, just yes. you know, in just for, for those of you saying Everson, as Engel, as well, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, to our podcast audience and our live audience, all of that will be explained in the next hour. Yes, if you listen. If you don't listen, then no. <laughs> um so let's start first
0: with with um, the incorporation cases. So that would be you know Betts, Adamson, and and Gideon. So why don't you talk a little bit about incorporation and Justice Black and why why these are signature cases of his, and what it has to do with Bruin?
2: Now, by incorporation, we don't mean IBM, we don't mean General Motors. What we mean is one of the two or three biggest ideas of the 20th century in American constitutional law. The big issues include, of course, a reapportionment revolution, and Hugo Black was part of that, and include a racial reckoning uh, centered on Brown versus Board of Education, and Hugo Black, of course, is in the middle of that. Now we're talking very powerfully about um, reprodu- reproductive issues. Uh, Roe and Casey and the Dobbs opinion, which has overruled all of that, but arguably as big as any of those. And those are huge issues in American constitutional law. One person, one vote. Hugo Black is at the heart of that. And racial equality and uh, reproductive rights. Incorporation is every bit as big as those. Incorporation, Andy, as you and I have talked about in many previous episodes, refers to the idea that the Bill of Rights, that is the first... Eight amendments, nine amendments, ten amendments, depending on how you count. But the, the early amendments adopted right after the ratification of the Constitution, adopted in the 17, the early 1790s, those rights, free speech, free press, free exercise of religion, petition, assembly, the right to keep and bear arms, uh, right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, double jeopardy, confrontation, compulsory process, cruel and unusual punishment, counsel, the rights of these amendments originally applied only against the federal government. It's a landmark case We're confirming all of that, a case called Baron v Baltimore from 1833, but just open up your po- copy of the constitution and some of you in the live audience now have po- pocket copies and just look at the first word of the first amendment. Congress Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. The amendments were designed to limit the federal government, and only the federal government. It ends with the Tenth Amendment, which is about the rights of states. So it begins, Congress shall make no law, ends with the rights of states. And the original Bill of Rights emerged in the revolutionary period where localities had fought a war against an imperial center and were anxious about creating new federal power. They needed to do it for geostrategic military reasons, but they wanted a set of rights, but they created a set of rights against the federal government and only the federal government. This is confirmed by the great Chief Justice John Marshall in a case called Barron v. Baltimore in 1833. And on my view and Justice Black's view, the Civil War resulted in a series of amendments at the center of which there's the 13th Amendment ending slavery and a 14th Amendment I'm going to talk about just a little bit more and a 15th Amendment about a, a right to vote equally racially. In between the 13th Amendment ending slavery and a 15th Amendment promising voting rights for blacks, we have a 14th Amendment. And Hugo Black and I think that that amendment, and, and today, basically everyone on the court, and when Hugo Black thought it, not everyone on the court think that... At the core of the 14th Amendment is the idea that these rights that originally applied against the federal government, Congress shall make no law, now are supposed to apply against states and localities. They're supposed to be incorporated, as it were, against states and localities. And that is a big idea. If Joe Biden were here, he would say it's a big effin' deal. And it's going to be connected to the Bruin case... Everyone thinks about Bruin as a Second Amendment case. It's about guns. It's not a Second Amendment case, strictly speaking. And Andy, I know you. this is a pet peeve of yours. It's a, a 14th Amendment case. It's an incorporation case because it involved the state of New York, you see, and gun rights against New York. That's not a founding idea. That's a 14th Amendment. That's a Reconstruction idea. That's a Hugo Black idea that this right in Bruin which now applies against states and localities. Well, that's actually what Hugo Black did. What, what the court is now doing, what led by another Southern fundamentalist named Clarence Thomas, what Clarence Thomas and, the court, and a conservative court are doing in Bruin is very similar to what Hugo Black and a liberal Warren court did for other rights, namely apply them against the states and read them very broadly.
0: Just to uh, get a sense of how important this is, I know you like to talk about how the fact that we ask, sometimes you ask the audience to name their favorite Bill of Rights case. Yes.
2: To so the ones that come to mind, I just said, what are the biggest cases about liberty, about the Bill of Rights, that just come to your mind? You can even shout them out. What, what cases pop into your head when I say liberty and the Bill of Rights in America? Anybody. Baker, Baker v. Carr. Anybody else? New York Times versus Sullivan. Texas v Johnson. Texas v Johnson. That's about flag burning.
0: Okay, so those are some good
2: examples. Map v Ohio, Gideon versus Wainwright, Miranda oh. versus Arizona, Brown versus Board of Education, Griswold versus Connecticut. Okay, not one of those, and we could have named lots more is technically a Bill of Rights case. Ah. People are saying, what? I see jaws robbing. The Bill of Rights to Repeat originally applied only against the federal government, and not one of those cases was about the federal government. New York Times versus Sullivan is a case out of a place called Alabama. It was actually, have you heard of it? Okay, it's a state. Okay, so Mapp versus Ohio. Gideon versus Wainwright is about Florida. Roe versus Wade is Texas. Brown versus Topeka, Board of Education. And on and on Gris, uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. None of the cases, Texas versus Johnson, none, Texas, no, Roe versus Wade is Texas, none of the cases you mentioned. Baker versus Carr is about Tennessee's deviation from kind of proper one, today we would say proper one person, one vote principles, which Hugo Black pioneered, you see. And of
0: course, everything that happens in America happens in a state, but the point is that these were state laws in we're, general.
2: We're not talking about congressional laws. The Bill of Rights limited. Congress, say it with me, Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. And some of my, our friends would say, yes, Congress should just make no law, period. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be lovely if Congress... That? But you see, there was an anti-federalist states' rights attitude at the founding because they've just fought a war against the central government. Now, of course, this would never happen again, fighting a war against the central government. Oh, whoops, wait a minute. I'm in Alabama. I just saw Confederate flags on the, on, the, on, the, on the drive up here. So, oh... But after the Civil War, you see, our national narrative doesn't celebrate that kind of local opposition by force of arms to the federal government quite anymore. We, want, we have a different idea. We move from Congress shall make no law to a set of amendments that end with the words Congress shall power. The 13th Amendment ends with those words. 14th Amendment says Congress shall power. 15th Amendment ends with Congress shall power, an income tax amendment and, and direct election of senators, and it's going to empower a federal government more. So more power after the Civil War in the federal government and restrictions on states. Most importantly, the sentence that Hugo Black would want us very much to look at, and he'd ask us, he really would, if you he were here. I I, 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 can, I can, I can feel his spirit here. He'd want us to pull out our pocket copies, of the Constitution, because it's our document, it's a citizens' document. And I just got, uh, I guess, I, well, my podcast audience no, to it. I, I just got, yeah, a special Hugo Black pocket Constitution. He'd want us to read it because it's an, it's for ordinary people. It's the Fourteenth Amendment, Section One, Second Sentence: No state. Shall make and, by, and that includes localities, you see, which are parts of states, like Birmingham. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. The First Amendment shall make no law abridge, but it's limiting Congress. Now, a new amendment shall make no law abridge, but it's limiting states. That's the incorporation idea, because states... I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but misbehaved, actually, at a certain point in American history. This is called, in my part of the world, the Civil War. You know, Down here, it's called the recent unpleasantness or the War of Northern Aggression or all sorts of other things by some folks, not by everyone. The war between the states. It, you know, even the name you know, actually generates a conversation in America today. But Hugo Black, from the Southland, from uh, Alabama, said, This actually, that key sentence incorporates, makes applicable against the states all the fundamental rights, that is, the privileges and immunities that originally applied only against the federal government. Now they're supposed to apply against the states because, gee, if we had a set of rights against states and localities, maybe we wouldn't have had that civil war because states, you see in the years before the civil war, shut down free speech and free press and had dragnet searches that were um, involved unreasonable searches and seizures and had confiscations of, of guns of black folk and were depriving their citizens of basic fundamental rights. So the original Constitution uh, results in a set of rights against the central government after a revolutionary war against the central government, and now a new war in America, a civil war, is going to generate a different set of rights against state and local governments, which had misbehaved, or at least that's what the Reconstruction Republicans believed, and now you have and this is what's extraordinary because okay, th- th- this amendment came from Lincoln's pals northerners who were Republicans, basically. And it wasn't taken seriously by judges.
0: Yeah, Adamson is 1947, so now that's what, four score
2: and seven years? Exactly, four score and seven years after Mr. Lincoln's election, you see. The 14th Amendment was designed, Hugo Black believed, and I believe it too. I'm standing on his shoulders. He thought that key sentence was designed to make applicable against states and localities these fundamental rights, but the courts had not done that. Um, when he takes office 3738 as Franklin Roosevelt's first a- a- appointee the Bill of Rights was not generally applicable against the states and he said it it was designed to do that and he was right he's initially in dissent in Adamson eventually he'll come to be in the majority at the end of the Warren Court 1963 and my claim is that all of that's hugely relevant to Bruin because what the what Hugo Black is doing for some of these other amendments: jury trial, counsel, confrontation, and the like. The current court is doing for the Second Amendment. To repeat,
0: so let me read you the uh, the first paragraph of the syllabus of the of the Bruin decision. New York. Now, I don't always, I don't entirely agree with this, but well, that's another matter. Um, New York's proper cause requirement violates the Fourteenth Amendment. By preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. So, so that's incorporation in one paragraph. It, there. it, it
2: absolutely is. So, just, so, so who's actually now channeling the, uh, Hugo Black? It's, it's interesting. It's an inversion. Hugo Black is a liberal on a liberal court. And today, the Bruin opinion is written by a conservative on a conservative court. Hugo Black was talking about rights under the the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment and the Eighth Amendment and, and the First, of course. And now the court is doing that for the Second Amendment. He's a white man who is a Democrat, and Clarence Thomas is a black man who is a Republican, you see. But Hugo Black is actually, in lots of ways, the inspiration for Clarence Thomas. They are both Southerners who are taking seriously in a fundamentalist way. This is the Bible Belt. They're they're reading their scripture, and their scripture is the Constitution, and they're actually saying, in a Protestant tradition of a certain sort, we can read the text for ourselves, And the text actually says this thing, and here we stand. You know, like Martin Luther, we can do no. This is what it says. It actually says certain things. And if the precedents say otherwise, so bad for the precedents. Now, just finally, Hugo Black, I just want to say a little bit more about Adamson, but just to set the stage and tell you what Adamson was, because we've now referred to a few times. Black gets on the court in the late 30s. By the early 40s, he's done a lot of research on his own and he's come to the idea on his own with a library card. I'll tell you my li- library card story. I, I, his library, his personal cl- book collection is just right th- down the road in Tuscaloosa. You can actually see it's been recreated. They don't usually let people in the public see it but I was a guest several years ago and and you all down here have to be you're nice to your guests so I, I asked could I actually take a look at the books and they let me you know, go in there and and I open up his desk because I'm nosy, I'm an historian, and there's his library card. Hugo Black, just with a library card, is just reading books, buying books, arguing with books, and teaching himself history. And by the early 40s, in a case called Betts versus Brady, he's in dissent. But he says, actually, I think the Bill of Rights applies against the states, all of them, all the provisions of the Bill of Rights. He's in dissent and bet. By 1947, he writes this Epic dissent. He only has four votes. But he says the entire Bill of Rights, not just this provision or that one, speech, press, petition, assembly, free exercise, everything, and everything, by the way, on his view, includes the Second Amendment, which won't happen until Clarence Thomas and and, and company in cases called Heller and City of Chicago and now Bruin. Hugo Black is saying in forty-seven, it should apply. By 19... What's Adamson about, though? Adamson, on its facts, is actually about self-incrimination, which my podcast audience knows you know, is a very interesting provision. In Adamson, uh, so Betts was about appointed counsel. Black thought the Sixth Amendment was about counsel, and counsel means appointed counsel. Thought that's what it meant against the federal government in a 1938 opinion called Johnson v. Zerbst, and he says if, if at the federal level, if you're indigent, you get appointed counsel because the big idea is, you know, if you're innocent, you need counsel, you know. And if you don't have counsel, you might be convicted just because you're poor, rather than because you're guilty. And at the federal level, the court accepted that for all all criminal defendants. In a case called Johnson versus Zerbst, and in Best versus Brady, he says we should do the same thing for states and corporation. He doesn't have the votes. Felix Frankfurter on the other side. He loses. And Adamson is about self-incrimination. It's about a guy who um, is from California, who doesn't take the stand, and the prosecutor actually calls that fact to the jury's attention and encourages the jury to draw an adverse inference against the defendant for being, being silent in a federal courtroom. That would have been improper. And Hugo Black said, gee, the rules that apply, the basic rules of the Bill of Rights that apply against the feds, should apply against the states. Again, he only has four votes. 1963... And Frankfurter is opposed to him there, too. Um, and our podcast audience knows that we've been talking about Frankfurter versus Black. But 1963, Frankfurter's off the court. And now, actually, Black has got a fifth vote for all these things. And then the Warren Court kicks into high gear. Gideon versus Wainwright, by none other than Hugo Black, overrules Bets v. Brady. And this begins the incorporation revolution with all sorts of other provisions coming to apply against states and localities, and being read expansively. Now, Black, in the end, the, court, the Warren Court doesn't hear a case about the Second Amendment, so that doesn't actually happen until the, the modern era uh, under the Roberts Court, with first a case saying the Second Amendment actually should be read r- robustly, a case called Heller, and the Warren Court's reading right to robustly, and Roberts Court said, hey, what you did for other amendments, we should do for the Second, we should read it robustly. That's a case called Heller, but the real cases, Andy, that are key are the incorporation cases because the federal government doesn't actually regulate guns that much states and localities do so the key cases are incorporation cases one is called city chicago versus mcdonald and now bruin and they're totally in the hugo black tradition
0: okay so i think that makes it pretty clear um now, next we wanted to talk about the Dobbs case. Now, we've talked a lot about the Dobbs case. We had nine episodes on the Dobbs case. It's uh, obviously been a big, big subject of, of discussion and debate. Um, and we're not here to litigate the Dobbs case uh, in this podcast today. But ultimately, the Dobbs case is about unenumerated rights.
2: Yes. And, and Hugo Black was great and, uh, and a champion of enumerated rights. And he read them expansively and he wanted to apply them against the states, which is where the action is. And what's the difference between enumerated and unenumerated rights for people new to the pocket? Enumerated means it's in the text. It's listed. To enumerate is to list. And so Hugo Black was a textualist. That's why he wants you to read the pocket your pocket constitution. He always carried one around. He says, like, this is... A layman's document. Ordinary people can read it. They ratified it. They insisted on amendments to it. The hotshots at Philadelphia forgot about a Bill of Rights. Ordinary people said, "Dudes, you forgot the rights because they read it. They said, where do, where the They were added. Black thought they should be read expansively. And after the 14th Amendment, they should be incorporated against the states because no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. And those? And what are those privileges and immunities? Black says, the stuff in the Constitution. And he says that in Adamson, and he loses. But then when Felix Frankfurter rotates off the court in 62, 63, now Black has five votes for this different proposition, and the Warren Court kicks into high gear. Okay, That's Black on enumerated, listed rights. He's very, very expansive. He, and he reads other rights. Broadly, bill of attainder rights and jury trial rights in Article Three, as well as in the Sixth Amendment. Okay, but Um, those are also innumerable. They're They're just not in the the Bill of Rights necessarily. But Black is skeptical because he's skeptical of judges who just sort of substitute their judgment, their opinions for democracy for the American people. So he's very skeptical about judges making he would say making things up that aren't in the text. In, this in particular, he comes onto the court, Franklin Roosevelt's first appointee, to stop the court from lochnering. Now, Andy, you and I have talked a lot about lochnering, and our podcast audience knows this, but for the live audience, for a 50-year period after the Civil War, between, say, 18, mid-1880s and mid-1930s, the court isn't taking seriously what the 14th Amendment at its core is about, black equality and fundamental Rights like speech, press, petition, assembly, the Bill of Rights. They're not taking that seriously, and they're not taking racial equality seriously. This is the era of Plessy versus Ferguson, 1880s to 1930s. They're not doing that, but they're protecting rights of corporations, of fat cats, of property and contract, about of sweatshop employers and, and others who use their economic power against others. Black thought that was all made up. He says that's not what the Constitution is about. Judges are creating, out of whole cloth, you know, certain rights, and using them to strike down progressive and social legislation like minimum wage laws, and maximum hour laws, and worker safety laws, and consumer protection laws. So so Black is put on the court to stop Lochnering, because Franklin Roosevelt is elected on a coalition that's going to focus less on property and, and more on equality for us all. So Black Black's vision is unenumerated rights are dangerous because judges are fat cats, and if you let them create rights that aren't clearly articulated, they'll create rights for fat cats. And you see that in his dissent in Griswold, which is actually not a case about fat cats. It's not about property. It's about liberty. It's about actually using contraception in the home. And it's about a very weird law, a law that makes it a crime for even a married couple to use contraception in their home. This is in the mid-'60s. Connecticut is the only state that prohibits even married couples from using contraception. It's not about buying contraception, using contraception in their home. And the Warren Court said, this law is un-American. It's just out of sync with um, American values, and it's intruding upon home life and and, and the Fourth Amendment, just to remind our audience, talks about houses, no unreasonable searches and seizures of houses. The Third Amendment talks about no courting of troops and houses. So if you're reading the Third and the Fourth Amendments expansively, you could say, well, there's a, a sort of a private domain. And if you're thinking just about where rights come from beyond the Bill of Rights, because if they just meant no, st- no state shall make or enforce any law which shall uh, abridge the Bill of Rights. Why didn't they say the Bill of Rights or Amendments 1 through 8 or something? They didn't. So the court says there are unenumerated enumerated rights and we're going to enforce them and we're going to find them in American custom and tradition. 49 states respect this right. Only Connecticut doesn't. But Black, who's very skeptical of judges adding to rights, is a dissenter in Griswold. And um, although he's not on the court and Roe versus Wade comes along, Roe is building emphatically and squarely on Griswold, maybe going way beyond Griswold, but but Roe sits on Griswold, and Casey sits on Roe, and now Dobbs has overruled all of that in a huge... But hugo- not Griswold. They haven't, but who knows what Justice Thomas... Justice Thomas has some, some edgy things to say in a concurring opinion, That but they're building on, for good or for ill... <laughs> They're building on Hugo Black's skepticism of unenumerated rights. Now, I think candidly that Black made a mistake in Griswold because that was an easy case for rights protection simply because, again, two things. If you read houses broadly in the Third and Fourth Amendments, you can see it's about protecting not, not, not the physical building, especially after we've gotten rid of you know just this... Uh, exaggerated protection of property. It's about protecting the life within the house, home life, and and that's you know uh, marital privacy and family life. Uh, an earlier Hugo Black might have been more open to that when he was, if he's reading other rights expansively. Plus, even if there weren't a Third Amendment or the Fourth Amendment, there are unenumerated rights. The Fourteenth uh, Amendment d- could have just said, could have said, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the Bill of Rights, but it doesn't say that. It said privileges and means because there are additional ones above and beyond, unenumerated rights vis-a-vis the federal government, Ninth uh, Amendment-like rights that should be applied against the states. Where do we find them if we don't trust judges who are going to be fat cats? We should find them in American customs and traditions by looking actually at the states. And to repeat, Griswold's easy, and I think with great respect for black whom I adored, and still do, he made a mistake in Griswold that 49 states actually respected this right in practice. And so that's these Now, Roe, just so we're clear, and it, our audience knows this, on, on my view, is very difficult because Roe invalidated the laws of 49 states. Only one state met the standards laid down by Roe versus Wade at most, only one, New York. So Griswold, really easy. It's a weird outlier law. Roe not so easy at all. And and given that Black dissented in Griswold, of course, we don't know for sure, but but I think he would have been very skeptical of the court's approach in Roe versus Wade. And if so, oh, his moment has now come back again, because that's what the Dobbs case is all about. And you know, we have
0: uh, several episodes on unenumerated rights and how you count states and you know, look at the Ninth Amendment to, to look for sources of, of unenumerated rights. So, I'm Rights gonna... of the
2: people, privileges and immunities of citizens, not what do judges think, but what do ordinary people think their rights are. And one way of trying to suss that out is to look at the laws that ordinary people are supporting or not at the state or local level and count them up.
0: And next we talked about the, I the, uh, mentioned the Carson case. So this is a uh, religious equality case or a religious
2: freedom case out of Maine. And Hugo Black believed passionately in religious equality. He also believed in a certain idea perhaps of separation. As our audience knows, those two ideas are in some tension, but just in a nutshell, here are two of his most famous decisions. They're both for a majority. One is is... a case called Engel versus Vitale, and he says government in public schools should not be in the prayer business. Government shouldn't uh, require kids to pray or even lead government-organized prayer. Even if you let people opt out, they're going to have to stand up and stand out if they don't want to participate in the government-organized prayer ceremony. And no matter how the government does it, if it composes its own prayer or it picks one from some religious tradition... That won't be equal. They're gonna pick a scriptural passage from the Protestant Bible, the King James Bible rather than the Dewey Catholic Bible. They're gonna pick a certain translation rather than another version. It's gonna be a Christian text rather than a Buddhist text or a Muslim text or a Hindu text. So that won't be equal. The government just should not be in the organized prayer business schools because it's not equal and it's basically stigmatizing religious minorities by making them stand out and stand out. That angle. And in Everson, he actually said this was equal. Everson is in the 1940s, 47, I think. Engel is 1962, 63. But Everson said, here's what is permissible. The government is giving a bus subsidy, a school bus subsidy, a kind of voucher of a sort, to all private schools, whether they're religious or not. And if the private non-religious school is eligible for a school bus a voucher, the private religious school should be equally eligible. We don't favor any religion, but we shouldn't disfavor it as well. Now, when you put those cases together, Black is anticipating, and he doesn't go all the way to Carson, but Carson, this case out of Maine, says the following. We can have public schools and only public schools, and there's no prayer in them, and that's fine. Engel. But if the government... If there are private schools that are out there and they get any help from the government, they get a voucher of a certain sort, we have to actually make sure that we're not discriminating in favor of or against religion. We have to be equal. If the private non religious school that teaches reading, writing, arithmetic gets a voucher, then the private religious school that, te- that teaches the exact same thing reading, writing, arithmetic, and also has a, let's say, a prayer as part of its offerings. Actually get the same voucher, not no more, but no less. You shouldn't be basically penalized, taxed, because in addition to reading, writing, arithmetic, you also have a prayer. You don't have to have vouchers at all for the for private schools, but if you do, you gotta treat religion equally. Now that takes one step beyond Everson. And Everson he just says it's permissible to treat the religious private school equally by giving them the bus voucher. That's similar to Justice Breyer's position. It is in Carson, but Carson takes one further step. Not only are you allowed to treat religion equally, but when you think about equality, it's not just the government is permitted to treat people equally, it's obliged to treat people equally, and that's the Carson case. Now, I don't know actually, truthfully, uh, what Justice Black might have thought about that, because he's a strong equality person, but there also are certain things that he said that suggest a a tradition of separation of church and state, and that's in some tension with the pure equality provision. Certain separationists don't think that government money should ever flow to religion. I think you have to pick separation or equal, and you should pick equal because it's actually in the Constitution, and separation ends up discriminating against religion if the non-religious private school ends up getting a voucher and the religious private school is is left out in the cold. That seems to me a, a problem. But I can't look you all in the eye here in the audience and say I'm 100% sure that Hugo Black would have agreed with Carson. But I can tell you, if you take these two cases seriously, the cases actually in the main are about equality and not separation.
0: Now, so we we started off by saying that this is his moment, in a sense.
2: Right. We said, OK, well, here's the three most important
0: cases. And in fact, they... He had a lot in common with them, but that doesn't quite add up to it being his moment. I mean, there's also a question about what the court has said about the way it's deciding. Right. And I think in some ways that that's actually a clue to why this is, uh, Black is, is, you know, ascendant.
2: Yes, it reminds me of a fellow who hands a, a paper in and the teacher says, well, the only two things I don't like about the paper. The first is its method and the second is its substance. Okay, so we've been talking about substance, and this is substantively a Hugo Black moment. It's about religious equality, it's about skepticism of unenumerated rights, a la Griswold, and emphatic and robust protection of enumerated rights and application against the states, Adamson, Griswold. Okay, so that's substance. What about method? This is an originalist court that says we're going to look at the text of the Constitution and prioritize that. We're going to actually pay attention to history, to original intent, and all of that is channeling Hugo Black, who paid attention to the text, but also taught himself a lot of history, and not just any old history, but the history behind the particular constitutional provisions, the text that he was asked to think about. So he's not thinking about the history of the 1880s because there's no constitutional amendment in the 1880s. He's not thinking about the history of the the 1820s as such because there's no constitutional text that emerges there. He's trying to figure out, okay, there's a Bill of Rights, it's coming out of an American Revolution... What was the historical experience that gave birth to the Bill of Rights, to speech, press, petition, assembly? What was the historical experience that gave birth to the Civil War amendments? And when he studies the history behind the 14th Amendment, because he's a former senator, he says, I'm going to look at what the sponsors of the bills actually said, because I, I know how Congress works, and you pay attention to the sponsor of the legislation. I'm going to read what John Bingham who was the sponsor of the 14th Amendment in the House, actually said it was going to be about. And on one day, he used the word Bill of Rights 12 times, and on another day, six times. He said again and again, it's about the Bill of Rights. And in the Senate, the, the main sponsor was a man named Jacob Howard, and he actually had an elaborate speech in which he, he couldn't have been more clear than that the 14th Amendment at its core was about applying the Bill of Rights against the states. So Black says in ordinary language fashion, because he's like every man, you know, he, he was a jury lawyer, he's a trial lawyer, he, he's a senator who understands how to talk to ordinary people. He says, like, open up our, your Constitution. It actually says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of, citizens of the United States. Now, don't you think speech is a basic privilege of American of citizens or, or press or petition or assembly? If that's why it's in the Bill of Rights. That's good, really strong evidence that is fundamental, you see. So that's the textualism of Hugo Black. But he also was an originalist. He's studying the history, and he's teaching him. And in the primary sources, he's, he's diving into the congressional records and the secondary sources. He's reading the great history books written for ordinary people. Will and Ariel Durant's multi-volume History of um, uh, Book Civilization. Book of the Month
0: Club, right? Ten volumes. He's, he's, the uh, books that everybody owns and no one has read. He's,
2: to- that's, uh, he's totally into Book of the Month Club. And when I went, no, he is. When I went to his um, private library, which has been carefully reconstructed, it's exactly... The way it was the day he died. And and they don't let anyone else in, truthfully, but they had to be nice to me, because I was the guest. Um and so they 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 they, they opened up the, the, the velvet rope and um and, and and let me in. And I went in and I carefully pulled out a couple of the books. I'm a historian, I'm, I'm very careful with the sources. Pull out a book by Will and Ariel Durant, and he's underlying this and he's scribbling that in the margin, he's he's furiously conversing with sometimes debating with these authors okay that's the secondary literature he's diving into congressional records and, and and reports to try to figure out what people actually said they were they were they were doing um when I open up his drawer I find actually a draft registration card a blood donation card and a library card like this is it's so romantic like one, guy with a library card and a book of the month club membership actually teaching himself serious, seriously um, about especially American constitutional history.
0: And I think, you know, justice Black is renowned for the historical research that he did. I mean, we, I think we, the country owes him a debt for, but I don't think it's realistic to expect every justice of the Supreme court to spend their, their lives doing this level of historical research. Certainly, that hasn't been their habit. Yes. Um, so, And, and that- that's
2: just what I clerked for Stephen Breyer way back when uh, on the Court of Appeals before he was on the Supreme Court. But if you read his dissent in the Bruin case, the gun case, he says, like, six times, I'm not an historian. Judges really can't be historians. We're not going to generate... You know, we don't really have the, the the time to to figure out all the history, and he does say it
0: again and again. It's like it's like listening to Doctor McCoy. You know, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. <laughs> I'm a doctor, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm a not doctor, a historian. Jim. Jim, <laughs> I'm a doctor. Yes, but no, it's true. So that and and okay, he's not a historian, but he does have access to historians, and so you know, one of the things that we've talked about privately. Is you know frustration that the justices don't necessarily make use of the history that's available to them. If they want to do originalism like Justice Black, then they need to use the history like Justice Black. They don't necessarily have to find it. You know, I was a doctor. Uh, I'm retired. I'm still a doctor, but I'm not in practice. Um, I'm a doctor, but, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> I like Dr. McCoy. But um, you know, I would say, well, I didn't do the research you know, that I'm using in my practice day to day. But my skill is knowing how to evaluate the research and knowing what, you know, to use and, and staying abreast of it, you know, and, and so forth. And that's also, I would say, the obligation of the justices. And so when we get to today's moment, um, a couple of things. In our podcast, we've sort of made the case that the, if the, that originalism doesn't have to be conservative. Justice Black is certainly evidence of that and yet it's identified with conservatives and that uh, nowadays and that's largely i think because the conservatives are the ones that are doing the historical research and 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 referencing it if you look at the argument in in the dobbs case the uh liberal justices had an argument to make we say in our in some of our podcasts about women's equality and uh but the argument isn't made instead it's it's Row, Casey, row, Casey, precedent, precedent. The court has never overturned, you know, just because of new justices or, you know. All the memes. Precedent,
2: precedent, precedent. precedent. Row, row, row your boat, yeah. So, um, okay.
0: So we uh, say, well, you know, if this is going to be an originalism court, then the liberals have to play the originalist game. Like, not that it's a game, but the originalist...
2: Uh, approach. Just- it is a game, meaning that there are rules, and there and the rules are open to all. Tennis is a game, and I heard about Justice Black and his wife playing tennis a few minutes ago in an earlier presentation down here in Birmingham. There are rules to the game, and it can be played well or badly, and fairly or unfairly. Now, what Justice Black is, and what I've been saying is, the greatest originalist of the last century and a half was not. Conservative and is not a conservative. It is not Clarence Thomas. It is not Neil Gorsuch or Sam Alito. It is not Antonin Scalia or Robert Bork or Ed Meese. The greatest originalist of the last 150 years was a liberal, Hugo Lafayette Black. And before him, I would say the greatest originalist of the previous century was also a liberal named Abraham Lincoln. Okay, and Lincoln is from the Northwest, and Black is from the South, and Lincoln is a member of the Republican Party, and Black is a member of the Democratic Party. This is open to everyone, but but Abraham Lincoln actually looks at the Constitution, and he says to the Dred Scott Court, you just made that up. It doesn't say at all that slavery can't be prohibited in the territories. It actually says the exact opposite. The Congress has sweeping power to pass all needful rules and regulations of the territories. That's the text point, says Lincoln. And the history point is the very first Congress, the very first one, Prohibited slavery in the territories, in the Northwest Territories. And George Washington, George freaking Washington, signed his name to that. That's a big history point. Almost all the people who were in the first Congress who had supported the Constitution, who had been at at Philadelphia or in the ratifying conventions, they all voted for that law. And there were a lot of them in the first Congress. And Lincoln actually mentions them by name. He goes through a whole list, Hugo Black style, in his Cooper Union address. And he says, the Missouri Compromise. It prohibits slavery north of a certain line. Not even John C. Calhoun said it was unconstitutional. Every member of Monroe's cabinet thought it was constitutional. Those are originalist arguments based on text, based on history, and they're liberal originalist arguments. So, to repeat, Lincoln is a president, Republican from the Northwest, Black is a Democrat southerner justice so originalism is open to you whether you're a justice or a president whether you're from this part of the country or that one whether you're from this party or that party and it's equally open to clarence thomas you see it's open to conservatives and liberals uh, it's not intrinsically conservative um If anything, you and Andy have suggested it might lean toward the liberals because the Constitution was a liberal egalitarian document for its time, and so was the Reconstruction, and so was the the Women's Rights Movement and other things that happened in the 19-teens, direct election of senators, income tax amendment. So were the amendments that emerged in the 1960s, in part because of people like Martin Luther King. Have you ever heard of him? Did he ever spend any time in this part of the world? I wonder. Okay. So, if you
0: take those four moments that you know, depending on how you count it, it's somewhere between eighty-five and ninety-eight percent of the Constitution and the amendments were written during those four moments, and those are all moments of liberal, progressive change. So, why would the Constitution then? be inherently uh, conservative if if you're looking at its original intent.
2: Revolution, Civil War, 19-teens, 1960s. And Andy, you and I have also talked about how, interestingly, wars loom large. And this is offline, and this was actually something that you told me, and I said, right, you are. Wars often threaten liberty but can expand equality in all sorts of ways. Unproperty people fight for America, and so people like Franklin say, if they fight, they get to vote. Black men fight in the Civil War; they get the the right to vote before white women, but white women are going who weren't on the battlefield. But white women are going to be part of the World War One effort in all sorts of ways, and they're going to get the, the rights to vote in the 19 teens as World War One is going along. And after, um, uh, I think wo- it
0: has to do with the totality of war that comes with World War One. That the society, the war is is a war of the whole society, the, the economies.
2: And then the 1960s, you know, following a, a war in which blacks are 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 fighting against Aryan supremacy, and then in the Cold War, which is all about the hearts and uh, winning the hearts and minds of people in Africa and Asia and South America. These moments, the 1960s, the 19 teens, the 1860s, the the founding moment. These are areas of eras of uh, egalitarian liberal reform in America. So I actually think there are great potential for liberal. Originalist, And that takes us, actually, Andy, to some of the, the cases for the coming term.
0: Yes, and in fact, I just to finish the thought about um, what we've been talking about in the podcast and talking, advising the liberals to, if you will, to uh, take up the originalist banner. So the court, you know, it's, it's October. So the first Monday in October came and the court began. And there were oral arguments in the voting rights case. And the newest justice we just heard from... Uh, senator jones about who? senator doug jones yeah who so spearheaded the confirmation of katenji brown jackson to the supreme court so now she's on the court it's the first week of oral arguments and here's what she has to say here's a quote from the oral argument in the uh, voting rights case she says and th- they're talking about uh, questions about whether things have to be uh, race blind or not now th- i'm not addressing whether or not this is like the best argument in the world or something, but it's the, the nature of the argument that the I method. want to call attention the to The method. She says, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that it necessarily creates an equal protection problem, because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the constitution and what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th and 15th Amendments, in a race-conscious way. That they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against the freedmen in during the, the Reconstruction period were actually brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction which drafted the 14th Amendment. And the report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. And then she goes on to to uh, quote to Jacob Howard and, and so forth, and, and John Bingham. So that sounds like an originalism, or originalist argument to me. Um, and so it's, you know, we're, perhaps it's Hugo Black's moment from that point of view as well.
2: And Andy, just the words that she, she's using, forget, forget whether you agree with her or not. Just, for, just put that aside for a moment. Drilling down into history looking at primary sources like the joint committee i actually hadn't seen the transcript yet andy she actually mentions a bingham and howard well
0: she says the legislator who introduced that amendment okay so that so and then she quotes him unless the constitution shall restrain them these states will all i fear keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen
2: okay so that's in a hugo black tradition you know to die. drilling down into history not Looking at the text, but trying to understand the history behind it—that, in a word, originalism—and there's nothing wrong with it, my fellow liberals. I—I've been preaching this gospel. It's the gospel of Hugo Lafayette Black, forever. And I have to tell you, candidly, my friends, it's been pretty lonely for a long time. My my liberal friends have not been, you know, digging it, uh, buying it. So thank God for Justice Jackson. I'm I'm hoping she's going to continue to do this. And that was in a case, Andy, about a statute about voting rights and race. There's going to be an affirmative action case, a couple of them. She has to recuse herself in the Harvard case, but there's one out of North Carolina. And maybe we'll hear more from her about originalism in that case. And I'm not saying, again, you have to agree with her. You could say, you know, that was dealing with People who were actually slaves and children were slaves, and it's 150 years later. There are lots of things to say, but she's actually trying to, you know, learn history. Here's what she's not saying, and and she clerked for the same person for whom I clerked, and I adore. And he's coming on the podcast. Steve Breyer says six times, "I'm not an historian," and she's saying, "Oh, I'm going to make myself, or at least try to be an historian," and and I'm hoping she'll also read the secondary literature, as well as reading the primary sources for herself, Hugo Black style.
0: Okay, so we mentioned two big cases coming up this term. The voting rights case that's actually come up and the affirmative action cases. Um, but finally, there's what we think is the biggest case of all, which has been getting some more play lately. Um, the ISL case, or so the independent state legislature case. That's the case out of North Carolina um, called Moore versus Harper. And we've, we've had... Um, three episodes on that because Akhil and his brother Vic, who's the uh, dean of the University of Illinois School of Law, um, have written an
2: article in the Supreme Court Review about it. And it's free, and it's on the internet, and you can read it tonight if you're so inclined. But in addition
0: to that, I've been nagging Akhil about the fact, he says, uh, you know, you want the justices to he- read the history that you've done. You want them to read your arguments. Well, how realistic is it that they're going to read the words that made us the 800-page tome, which, which, by the way, everyone in this audience should read. Um, uh, that I mean both the live audience and our, our internet audience. Um, well, maybe they'll read it, um, but we can be pretty sure they'll re- they read the briefs.
2: The justices do, yes. Justices. So, and they're law clerks. So you should write a brief? Yes, Andy has been telling me this forever. You know, because I, I just kvetched Andy. That's a Yiddish term, meaning to complain. Okay, so so I'm just, you know, pissing and moaning to Andy. And, oh, you know, I've done all this work and, and people aren't taking seriously. Like, well, Akhil, your job isn't just to produce it. It's actually to make it as accessible as possible. So, like, suppose... We had a podcast because that's how a lot of people actually educate themselves. I said, what's a podcast? And <laughs> so, and, and now we're at episode 95, I guess, of yep. that. Okay. And so now you're telling me, okay, and you have been, you've you got a podcast. That's good. The justices may not know exactly what you said about this case that's pending or that case that's before the, them, this term for consideration. Make it easier for them. Take the ideas that you've developed in, in more detail and present it in accessible form to the justices and their law clerks.
0: In other words, do what Hugo Black had to do himself, do that for the justices.
2: Help them. Yes, because not everyone can be a Hugo Black because the guy was heroic, but very but Herculean and they're not and you can't expect everyone to do that on their own. So yes, Akil, put up or shut up. If you really believe in this originalism stuff, and you think the justices need to take it seriously, you need to help them do that. And you were right, Andy. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in a couple of weeks, the brief will be there, and uh... yes, I, you may actually hear about it. I'm I'm hoping that we'll make some news um, when the brief drops. I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much but i'm cautiously optimistic that people are going to pay attention to this thing
0: and of course we'll post it and it should be up what, by the end of the month probably or something absolutely like that. yes and will. and so it'll be posted in the show notes on our website at the at the appropriate time and it also we had recently as a guest uh, amy howe the creator of the scotus blog and that will certainly have it because they have all the briefs so the um now we didn't just we didn't say what the independent state legislature case was
2: yeah just you, in a nutshell, and then... A, a very wanna, small nutshell. Yeah, and then we got to get then our, we want to take your questions. Yes, yes. In a nutshell, here's the issue. The issue is whether a state legislature can choose, in effect, to pick presidential electors itself. Okay? And even, can it do that even if the state constitution is best read to say, oh, the people of Pennsylvania pick presidential electors. The state even if the state constitution says that can the legislature of Pennsylvania say no we can disregard the state constitution cuz the US constitution allows us to do this. And by that's, the
0: legislature in this sentence you mean the elected branches of the uh, of the legislature.
2: That's about the presidency article 2 there are also issues about congressional elections for article one if the legislature says yeah 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 the state constitution says that there's a a bipartisan congressional districting commission or something but the constitution gives us the right to disregard that part of the state constitution now here's we are the
0: independent state legislature I S L. no
2: court no governor no state constitution no commission we get to decide now Here's why it matters, especially for the presidency, in case I haven't gotten your attention. There are seven or so states that have red legislatures, Republican legislatures, but that voted for Biden. And there are no states that voted for Trump that have Democratic legislatures. Now, here are the states I'm talking about, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, you might have heard of Georgia because it's right next door, Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire. If the Republican legislatures in these states say, and here's what they may say, elections are frauds, Ill- people who are illegal are voting, so we're going to pick the electors ourselves. If they do that, there's no way a Democrat can ever win in, in, in the foreseeable future because you add up all those electoral votes and you put them on the Republican side rather than Democratic side. To repeat, Michigan. Pennsylvania Wisconsin George uh, Georgia Arizona, Nevada, New Hampshire, maybe Virginia, maybe North Carolina just uh, wow, okay so if not they, only
0: can a Democrat never win but we wouldn't have a republic
2: and if they can do that, even though the state constitution is best read to limit their ability to do that, oh it will be a different America now. Have I got your attention? That's actually a, a set of issues that are implicated, deep issues underlying the biggest case of the term. It's possible it's the biggest case of the decade when you really think about what's at stake, which is not just one right, like the abortion right, which is an important one, and I happen to be personally pro-choice, although critical, of Roe versus Wade in perhaps a, a, a Hugo Black tradition. But it's not just one this right or that right. It's all rights which are at stake when you're talking about who's the president and, and who's the Congress. So Moore versus Harper is all about this issue, and there'll be an originalist brief coming out very shortly in the Hugo Black tradition, trying to tee up the issues for the, uh, respectfully for the justices' consideration. If they're serious about originalism, then they need to confront the work of serious originalist historians.
0: So we'd like to take your questions, and we hope that this podcast has appropriately honored the uh, legacy of, of Hugo Black. So
3: so thank you so much for joining us at, at Cumberland, and, and your podcast and the event today I think has really honored Justice Black's legacy. Uh, so to quote the, the vaunted 80s philosopher Ferris Bueller, uh, a person should not believe in an ism, and so to, to just give a little... Uh, for food for thought skeptical pushback of of originalism, I think opponents often say uh, especially saying that it's it's results oriented even though it pretends not to be and uh, and your your citation of of Abraham Lincoln and justice Black as liberal originalists I think is very provocative and interesting. Um, my question I think to you is um, so, so Justice Black, who's, who's talked about today as a as a hero of the, the common person, the downtrodden, um, and individual liberties, and Abraham Lincoln, who had an expressed moral aversion to slavery, um, if originalism did not benefit those causes, would they have chosen another one? And so, is this is this more about the result? Um, which I think opponents, again, tend say it skews more towards a conservative result mm-hmm. because it looks back in time, um, and, and is this more about a result-oriented um, and perhaps um, in the guise of, of maybe what Justice Breyer would say, amateur history?
2: Great question. And reminds us all of your name.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm Tim McFarland and a member of the faculty here at Cumberland.
2: Thanks, Tim. So... Before I answer, I, I'm just flashing back to my own 80s experience watching that movie. There's actually a Yale Law School connected moment because the teacher, Ferris Bueller's teacher in the class, the person who says, Bueller, Bueller, <laughs> Bueller, is actually a graduate of Yale Law School, Ben Stein. Um, so Sp- speech
3: speechwriter for, for Richard Nixon, as if I recall correctly. He's
2: a very interesting character. Um, and he actually has like a podcast or something all about, you know, his ideas about the Constitution. And, but that's in the Hugo Black tradition that the Constitution is a game everyone can play. And if you haven't seen the movie, definitely go out and... And, 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 and take and, the day off and watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a joke then that, that, that the day off, yes. Ferris Bueller's day off. Okay. So now here's what I will say about Abraham Lincoln and Hugo Black. They were government officials. And they weren't allowed to wield power, and before they took an oath of office, and the oath of office is to actually the Constitution. The, of the president's oath of office, you know, is actually specified in the text of the Constitution. I do solemnly swear, will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend that Constitution of the United States. They're not taking an oath to precedent. They're not taking an oath to liberalism or conservatism. They're not taking an oath to their own personal vision or their understanding of the cosmos, they're taking an oath to the Constitution. The Constitution is the text. The Supremacy Clause refers to the Constitution, and the Preamble refers to this Constitution. And so I think, actually, they were faithful to constitutionalism when they took the text and history seriously. Now, and we heard earlier today, actually, about Hugo Black's a series of lectures that he gave at Columbia, the Carpentier Lectures. The book that came out of those lectures, actually, I just want to share with, with you the, the title of that book, and the title of that book is A Constitutional Faith. So it's almost a, a kind of a, a religious idea here, if you're taking an oath, you're, you're promising to... To be faithful to, to have fidelity to, the constitutional's text, the Constitution's text, then that's what you have to do. And Hugo Black was really serious about that, and Abraham Lincoln was very serious about that. And I hope all the justices are. And that means, at the end of the day, they're not taking an oath of office. With all due respect, Justice Kagan, they're not taking oath of office to the precedents, and and the precedents are. Have been wrong in the past, Plessy versus Ferguson. And Hugo Black was heroic in Brown versus Board of Education, you see, setting aside the contrary precedent. And when he gets on the court, the precedents are against him on all sorts of issues. But he says, gee, the Constitution says the right to vote. Let's do that. It says freedom of speech. Let's take that seriously. It says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges our uh, is a citizen of the United States, we have to take that seriously and the right of counsel seriously. So he, even if the president is on the other side, you see. Um, so what I can also tell you is, yeah, um, if, if, it's, if we don't take the con- now people have their moral and political views. They, they do. Um, but at least I want them to be trying to channel the Constitution. and here's what they don't openly say you don't actually have a justice saying, I'm voting for this be- because I'm a Republican. I'm voting for this because I'm a Democrat. Every day people say that in other branches of government because you're allowed to. You're allowed to say, actually, it's a big stinky pork barrel bill, but I'm voting for it because I'm a Democrat and that's our platform, okay? Joe Manchin can, absolutely, can, can actually say, this isn't the platform. Someone else can say, listen, you know, I don't love this, but this is what our party ran on and this is what we promised. Okay, you don't see justices saying, "Ah, because I'm a Democrat, I can do this." Because I'm a you don't see them openly say, "Well, this is just my personal philosophy." They do say, "Oh, because of precedent," but I'm saying even that actually is not what your ultimate fidelity should be to, if you're a justice. I think in the case of
0: Lincoln, you know, your your question, I think implicit in your question was the notion that Lincoln by taking a rigidist approach the constitution got what he wanted um, but i'm not so sure that that's the case i mean the constitution had to be amended to get him what he wanted ultimately i um, mean he time you know, time and again he he restrains himself and i, I think that uh, we would take issue i think and we have taken issue with with uh, the book by noah feldman about uh, which is very critical the broken constitution which is you know somewhat critical of lincoln i mean it comes out you know looking good in the end but you know, along the way, the, the idea that he kind of broke the Constitution to, to have to fix it, I, I don't think that that's a, a fair assessment of Lincoln. I think he was actually as rigorous and as faithful a, a lawyer as, as you could find.
2: So there are two points here, and they're in some tension, but I think they're both true. Lincoln is willing to enforce the Constitution even when it leads to outcomes that he doesn't like. He's going to enforce the fugitive slave law, and he promises to do that, and he doesn't like the fugitive slave law, Okay. Now you're saying, yeah, Akhil, Tim says that's just the point. The Constitution actually has all sorts of bad provisions, and I say, yeah, but truthfully, truthfully, if you took seriously what the Constitution is actually promising, even though you're looking at things in the past, these are radical ideas even today. So Gandhi was once asked what he thought of Western civilization, and he paused for a moment and says, I think it would be a good idea. So, I'm saying I think free speech is a good would be a good idea and the right to vote which is in the Constitution five times and birth equality and we're not doing that even today, okay So it said racial equality and the courts weren't doing that for the longest time. you see press and press and present. that's Plessy. It says incorporation and courts weren't doing that. And Hugo Black comes along and says, Let's actually do racial equality. Let's do right to vote. Let's do incorporation. In my lifetime, gay Americans weren't allowed to marry equally. No gay couple in America anywhere was allowed to marry before 2005, before the Goodrich decision. Now, here's my view. The Constitution's text actually says we're all born equal. And if some of us are born gay and some of us are born straight, and only the people who were born straight are allowed to pursue marital happiness, that's not equal. That's, so don't be so sure, truthfully, just because you're born later than they are, that you actually have a, a, a more impressive moral vision than they do, because the Reconstruction or the Radical Republicans are pretty extraordinary, and we still haven't li- lived up to them. So I think it would be a pretty good idea to actually live up to what the American revolutionaries promise what the 14, the Reconstruction Republicans promised, what the women's suffrage crusaders in the 19-teens promised, what the 1960s reformers actually promised. I think actually even in 2022, I'll take that, especially if my alternative is six conservative justices and three liberal justices all doing whatever the hell they want because that, at least in the immediate, uh, um, you know, immediate foreseeable future, isn't so good on isl or anything else but
0: we have challenged the, the the justices in effect and 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 not that they're necessarily listening to us but but uh, to say look isl and i think when you read the brief you'll you can read the article and be convinced but you'll and read the brief and be even more convinced that on originalist grounds isl is easy and if they don't live up to that well then their pretensions as originalists are exposed on the other hand If they reach a result which is contrary to what might be considered their political interests, then we would respect that. Next question, please.
4: I just wonder if you uh, would say something about whether or not you think that uh, Justice Black's uh, uh, originalism, whether he was more uh, uh, faithful to that or consistent then it's some of the uh, originalists today seem to like it when it suits their agenda, but they don't like it uh, the other times. Uh, So that's one question. And then I wonder uh, if uh, John Eastman is the author of this. uh, Did he come up with this independent uh, legislature uh, concept? And the last thing, to throw all this at you at once, is... Do you have anything to say about what's likely to happen on the uh, briefs that are coming up now that argue uh, on the uh, conception uh, being you know life beginning at conception and then now some uh, you know arguments being made to push back on that on a, a religious argument so that's a whole bunch of you, stuff. would
2: you remind us of your name sir uh,
4: uh, Randall Williams. thank you. Uh, so, great question. I think Andy already
2: began to anticipate the answer to your first question. The ISL case will be a very good test of um, whether the conservatives on the court are going to um, be consistent in their embrace of originalism, even when it leads to a political result that might disfavor the party that put them on the court. So it'll be a very good test of whether they achieve the kind of intellectual consistency that Justice Black aimed to achieve. Justice Black thought that the law in Griswold was a pretty silly law, this contraception law, but he didn't think it was unconstitutional, and so he voted to uphold a law that he would have voted against as a legislator. That's one way of thinking about the test. And he tried to hold himself to that and let's, ISL will be a really good test of that uh the second question was about john eastman yes isl is kind of john eastman on steroids that's the um the idea
0: it's a scary thought
2: yes the two ideas are very much connected some of eastman's ideas that the legislature he thought could jump back in even after the people had voted and decide for themselves really whom they really wanted to win or not okay that presidential election. So John Eastman's ideas are very much in line with ISL thinking. Now, the final question about laws that say life begins at conception, one important idea in the Constitution that I've highlighted in a Hugo Black tradition is the sentence before the key one that we've talked about today, Second sentence of the 14th Amendment, just to remind everyone, says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abid, abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Okay? Um, but the first sentence tells us who's a citizen. And that sentence says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Our audience, our podcast audience knows that I think that big idea there is an idea of birth equality. We're all citizens. Everyone born in America is a, a, a birthright citizen, a citizen at birth, and therefore an equal citizen. Now this is, Tim, a radical idea. It's a great enlightenment idea. Let me give you two or three different formulations of it. We're all born equal. We're all born free and equal. We're all created equal in a certain way, but it actually it's a birth equality version of the Declaration of Independence. Well this is an Enlightenment idea that you should be judged. What does it mean to be born equal? Or created equal? It's an enlightenment idea that you should be judged by what you do rather than who you are, to put it in MLK terms. You know, judged by Not the color of your skin, because you're born with the skin color, but but what you do with that, the content of your character, your deeds, the move from, in enlightenment terms, from status to contract. Okay, this is a radical idea. What does it mean concretely? Here's what I think it means concretely. It means you're born, and the key is it's born, so I'm not sure actually giving equal rights to unborn folks necessarily completely tracks the language of earth equality in the 14th amendment's first sentence but it means you're born an equal citizen whether you're born black or white and hugo black got that that you know people who are born black are equal citizens to those who are born white but it also means you're born equal whether you're born male or female you see that's gender equality that's that's ERA it, tim it's already in the 14th amendment or the 14th amendment plus the 19th amendment which is about political rights 14th Amendment plus 19th Amendment equals ERA today. In if we take seriously the deep ideas behind these principles, which are radical ones, women's political equality, women's civil equality, in the Gandhian terms, yes, I think these are, would be good ideas. Uh, okay, but hang on. You're born equal whether you're born black or white, male or female, I would say Jew or Gentile, if you're with Gaga and people are born this way, well, people who are born gay are equally entitled to marital happiness, with people are born straight, whether you're born in wedlock or out of wedlock, whether you're born first in your family or fifth, we shouldn't have laws giving firstborn people more legal rights, laws like primogeniture and entail, whether you're born in wedlock or out of wedlock, I said in illegitimacy laws, so whether you're born Jew or Gentile, Wow. These are radically egalitarian ideas even by the standards of 2022. So do not be so confident. I'll be you know really harsh, smug in thinking that just because you're born later, you actually have, you know, more advanced views than some of these guys who happen to have been born a long time before, you know, um, those of us in this room, but who had some pretty extraordinary ideas if we took them seriously. And one idea is birth equality it's an enlightenment idea it's a jefferson idea though he didn't live it out jefferson did the slaveholder but it focuses interestingly on birth and not conception
0: yeah and that would be a statute so you know would be inferior to the constitution you know in the first in the first place oh yeah I mean, we'd have to but figure it, out exactly have,
2: what that statute means mean. how how how, yeah. how how it gets cashed out here's what i do think is perfectly permissible And we had Nadine Strawson, the head of the ACLU, for many years on our podcast. It's a great episode. She's an amazing person. Nadine, if you're listening, we we salute you and remember you tonight. Um, Let's imagine a legislature says the following. If a thug shoots into the belly of a visibly pregnant woman to bring about the death of her unborn child, either because the thug is the biological father or isn't the biological father and is resentful of the, the one who is, can the state treat that as murder? And I think yes, actually, because okay. that doesn't limit the rights of the woman. And in fact, it might be it's a wanted pregnancy. She might have a right to terminate a pregnancy. She also has a right to carry it to term. And this is, a, an, of course, an offense against her body and and liberty and autonomy but also against this other entity so there there might be situations where we say yeah we're going to treat unborn folks with full legal rights the abortion question is a little different because whether they have full legal rights against the mother who, who is is carrying them is a very different question than whether they have rights against a third party a thug who actually is assaulting both the woman and and the unborn child. So there are all these complexities here. But if you want to hear an episode on that, listen to the Nadine Trosen episode.
0: And we also had an episode on ERA, and there's all sorts of uh, fun things about that in terms of like whether states can withdraw their approval of a constitutional amendment or whether the expiration uh, is valid, you know, and, and so forth. So there's a lot of interesting stuff in that as well. You have a follow-up, I take. Uh, it?
4: I did. I didn't quite make clear though that part of what I was getting at was that. It's a religious argument, which uh, you know seems to be in conflict with um, you know the protection uh, against uh, freedom. So-
2: right. Well, I'm not sure that any statute that some people support merely because of their religious views is unconstitutional merely because of that. There are people, that actually support laws against murder just because they think it's in the Old uh, Testament that murder is a a violation of one of the commandments. So the test isn't whether some people are voting for a law for religious reasons. That can't be the test. The test is whether the law can survive careful analytic scrutiny as being based on um, permissible good government reasons apart from religion. I just gave you permissible good government reasons for thinking we want to protect the right of innocent, unborn human life and the woman's right to conceive and bear a, a desperately wanted child against a third-party thug. There's, I didn't have to appeal to any weird, eccentric you know, um, superstition to basically say, Look, let's even take a cruelty to animal law. I don't have to say that animals are persons to say persons aren't allowed to be cruel to animals. There's actually a case in California the Supreme Court's considering right now about cruelty to pigs and how they're being you know, and whether they're raised in, in cruel conditions or not, or people for the ethical treatment of, of animals. Now some people might support all these laws for spiritual reasons because they, they think that that animals are, are actually
0: reincarnated be,
2: people. Or spiritual entities, or this is what our duties to the earth as as humans require. So some people might actually vote for these laws for religious or quasi-religious reasons, but that in and of itself would not doom these laws as long as we could actually point to non-religious reasons that fully justify the scope of the legal prohibition. Please.
5: I was going to say, I just... You have to tell
2: us your name for the podcast.
5: Josephine Hallam. I'm actually a criminal defense attorney in Arizona, and I did just plead a boy who uh, stabbed to death a mother not knowing she was pregnant, and we had to plead out to two murders. Um, So the fetus was considered a human. But um, my question is about the abortion uh, law. And and was was there
2: transferred intent um, issues as well? No, it was
5: considered a human under Arizona law because it was 41 weeks and it would have survived outside the womb. Wow. That's our standard. But under the abortion law, I'm I'm wondering what your views are on the fallout because in Arizona, the first thing that happened was the ACLU contacted people like me who are criminal defense attorneys, and we were assigned to uh, places to defend if they gave abortions. Um, and then we do have a right to privacy under the state constitution, which is good, you would think. Um, but then we the legislature enacted. Are, uh, uh, are cut off, which is very young gestationally. Uh, but then it was announced by the county attorneys, the prosecutors, and the sheriffs that they will not prosecute or arrest anybody who gets an abortion. So I just was wondering if what your views are on the fact that now we have all the uh, authorities saying they're not going to arrest or institute the laws, and we have the legislature's saying we're going to make these arcane laws, and so it's creating real havoc and discord in the states?
2: Two points. Thank you for that question. One, state constitutions are important, and they trump state state statutes. They override state statutes, and they are to be enforced by state supreme courts. So if the state constitution creates a more robust... right of reproduction than the federal constitution does. That's perfectly okay under Dobbs. And the the entity to decide that is the state Supreme Court. They're going to decide what that um, right of privacy in the Arizona Constitution means. And that's connected to ISL. Our position is state constitutions create all sorts of guarantees and state Supreme Courts are the ultimate interpreters of the meaning of those state constitutions. So that's one big point. importance of state constitutions and and state Supreme Courts, and it's connected to ISL. Now, a second point is, how should we think about a law that is on the books but not really enforced? If we're going to be counting, gee, how many states actually prohibit contraception versus allow it or prohibit abortion versus allow it. We look at merely law on the books or law in action. I believe we should actually look at law in action. We should pay attention not just to whether legislatures have prescribed a certain, uh, uh, prohibited a certain action, but whether those prohibitions are actually enforced. Because if they're not, if they're not because prosecutors won't enforce them or because juries will nullify them, won't convict under them. That's actually telling us about the mores of our society.
0: Doesn't Justice Kennedy uh, discuss this in some of the uh, gay rights cases? He
2: does discuss this in Lawrence versus um, Texas, in particular. So, and these mores of society, which are reflected in laws on the books, but also in prosecutorial practices and jury patterns of conviction. This is evidence of and i think this is the note on which we should close andy all these is evidence of what actual americans in their systems of government and their and their daily practices believe the privileges and immunities of citizens of the united states to be okay and he wants to remember that key language of the 14th amendment because more than anyone in the last century hugo black tried to focus fellow citizens, on that key sentence of the 14th Amendment. He didn't talk the talk of substantive due process. He talked the talk of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, I go beyond him in saying it means more than Amendments 1 through 8. It means that, of course, but it means more. And how do we find out what unenumerated rights above and beyond the textual ones are to we be do it by
0: listening to America's Constitution.
2: No, because that's just Akeel's ideas. We, look, we do it by looking at actual practices across America. And what you're saying is those practices aren't merely defined by laws on the books, but whether actually you can get a conviction. Because if you can't ever get a conviction, actually that's because ordinary citizens on the jury are saying, no, I'm never going to convict for this or that or the other thing. A lot of marijuana laws on the books you know, but you're not going to get a conviction, okay, and, and that's relevant to what ordinary people, ordinary citizens on juries, for example, or, and, if, and ordinary citizens aren't going to convict, prosecutors aren't going to bring cases, you see, you're a criminal defense. but this is relevant to what Hugo Black said, he said, pay attention to what ordinary people think, not just judges,
0: well, thank you very much to, again to Stanford University, uh, the Cumberland School of Law for, for hosting us and to our great audience today. So how about a big hand? Thank you.
1: That was a great answer to give to the granddaughter of Hugo Black. Oh, my gosh. Oh,
0: well, it's an honor. Thank you.